You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable blade knives, fixed blade knives, and game processing kits. Now, we've all been there before, trying to field dress your wild game with a dull knife. This is where Outdoor Edge really steps in. With the Razor Safe system, you can have a brand new razor sharp blade with just the push of a button. No more dull blades and no more problems processing your wild game. To check out all of the products from Outdoor Edge, visit OutdoorEdge.com. And at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30. That's N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off of your purchase. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Brought to you by Vortex Optics. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the old NFC podcast. Hopefully everybody is having a great week thus far. I don't know when this podcast is coming out, so I'm not going to put any dates to it. Um, As you're listening to this, though, I am somewhere in South Dakota chasing mule deer. And uh, this will be my fourth year, I believe. Fourth year? Yeah, fourth year third year I can't remember anyway it's crazy I'm so tired right now um, and I have like a, t- a 10 hour drive in front of me tomorrow and I'm trying to pound these episodes out before I get in a car and disappear for a week anyway we have an excellent episode for you today uh, we're going to be talking with Michigan native Calvin Beakey and Calvin um, uh had a little bit of luck on his side but he had a little bit of skill on his side too and that led him to one hell of a Michigan whitetail Um, low water table uh, just a little bit more room for deer to bed on his property and guess what Uh, he was in the right place at the right time and uh, the deer came through his area after bedding real close to uh, where his tree stand was and guess what he got a shot opportunity on a stud for uh, for that area. So really good episode. He's going to break down the entire hunt for us. Hopefully you guys enjoy uh, this episode. I'm going to keep the intro short. I'm going to go right into the um, right into the commercials here. We have Wasp Archery, WaspArchery.com. If you guys are looking for uh, a really durable shit kicking machine broadhead, you need to check out Wasp. Uh, They have a a whole lineup of fixed blades. They have a whole lineup of um, 
mechanicals so please keep all that in mind uh the next time you're looking for broadheads a majority of their heads are made in america from the best possible materials and that's coming straight from the horse's mouth uh, over there at wasp one of their engineers told me all about it uh, wasparchery.com if you want to save 20 percent, enter the discount code the number nine followed by the word fingers nine fingers 2021 nine fingers 2021 and that's going to save you 20 percent off your purchase and then we have vortex optics vortex is the title sponsor here i'm going to say three things about the company one superb optics i'm taking a, a really good pair of binoculars with me that i've had for seven years um, i'm taking a spotting scope with me that i've had for about three i beat the shit out of them um, i break them i send them in i take advantage of their vip warranty which is number two uh, not a lot of companies in the industry are doing this you break it destroy it whatever you send it in they fix it they send it back to you no charge on you for free um, and then the th uh, third thing there is the people uh, the culture at that company. It is a culture of helping out the end user, making sure their customers are happy. And then that just sparks return customers. And they also give back to the, you know, the, the, the natural resource that they take away from as well. They're giving back to conservation. They're giving back to a variety of other, um, you know, on a variety of other uh, outlets as well. So take that into consideration. And then lastly, Hunt Stand. I'm going to be on Hunt Stand a lot when I'm out in South Dakota. I'm going to be um, uh, tracking everything, maps, property owners, boundaries, all everything that you need to know when you're out in the field uh, and all the functionality you need from a digital mapping uh, service, then you need to head on over to huntstand.com, read up on all the functionality. And they are currently offering a discount code. Um, and that discount code is SN20. Uh, you can download the app for free, but if you want um, more functionality in the elite level, I think it's $29.99 a year or 30 bucks a year or something like that and then you you enter in SN20 and you can get an additional 20% off so uh, big deal there all right commercials are done let's get into today's episode with Calvin Beakey three two one all right everybody on the phone with me today, Mr. Calvin Beaky. Calvin, first off, congratulations on a stud buck, man. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so typically we BS um, a little bit before the the podcast, but we're on a we're kind of on a short schedule today. I, I just really quick, what do you do for a living? I flip homes and flip land um, and rent land, so kind of a uh, just generally speaking, a real estate investor definitely blend the hunting big time with um, with the real estate investment, and we do a lot of um, we do a lot of um, just to give an example, buy a you know buy a farm, fix up the farmhouse, sell the sell the farm on a couple acres, you know hunt the land, bet the land, and uh, and sell the land, keep some of it, etc. So land investments, rentals, etc. Gotcha. So is flipping homes as glamorous as HGTV makes it look like? <laughs> in some ways, yes. And in other ways, no. no. And, uh, I, I love my team and um, love our crews and, and, and turning around homes is, is awesome. Same thing with hunting property is, is yeah. just kind of, we're going through, going, we're doing a, doing one in Ohio right now where we'll be, we'll be 
of bringing down our, our whole crews to to um to actually hunt as kind of a company outing here in two weeks and um oh, cool. i'm really excited and when you have some big successes you actually you actually make the property you know worth more um so we kind of you know fix up the cabin barn and uh had actually had a you know a few acres of food plots installed and, and um stands and blinds put up and and so We'll see. Sometimes they're hard to part with too, but you can't keep all of them. <laughs> right. Right. It would be awesome to have about 50 different farms to choose from on a, on a yep. regular basis. <laughs> Just find the big one, big deer and, and go after that. Yes, sir. All right. So awesome, like awesome career path that you've chosen because uh, it sounds to me like this gives you a lot of opportunity based off of your profession to, get in and, and hunt some of these pieces like give, obviously just giving you more opportunity yeah it definitely does um it, it's kind of ironic that i you know i worked for i don't know seven years in the hunting industry before you know moving out of the hunt, hunting industry and into real estate um and uh before i did a you know had the marketing firm and then sold that to to four zero and then we you know helped or helped launch the whole camera arm brand and, and wind scent and all of that. And, um, so that was all, I, I loved all of that, but ironically, uh, you know, instead of being so focused on career and the needs of your job in hunting season, now it's kind of, a the opposite where, where hunting season is now the free time. And I try to spare as much time between, between family, church and life's obligations to, uh, to chase whitetails and i i gotta say i like it better being out of the hunting industry than in sad yeah. to say um everybody seems to chase that dream and and i've definitely definitely living the dream you're fixing houses and and dabbling with hunting land and yeah and chasing big deer so yeah. it's um not without its challenges but i love it yeah and there is definitely i'll tell you there are definitely times when i wish my profession didn't revolve around the hunting because obviously I'm getting ready to get into the uh I lose you there, Dan? uh the the time of the year. Hello, can you hear me? Yeah, so what I was saying was um the uh the profession, right? Especially this time of year for for me is I want to get out and hunt as much as possible, but I I've realized that my company needs me in September and October and November. So it's definitely those months that I, I can't and should not slack on. But at the same time, I want to get go out and do my my passion or my obsession. And uh, so I, I'm going to have to really think about how I'm going to um, structure my business moving forward to get out and actually, you know, hunt more like what you're talking about. Yeah, it's a it's a blessing and a curse, right? It's right. um it's it's an awesome place to be and you're you're privileged and blessed to be in that position and you have an exciting career that a lot of guys wish they had and um but the, I think a lot of guys also don't pick up on the the demands within the within the hunting season. Yeah, that's a fact. That's a fact. All right, so we're going to get right to the point here, and we're going to talk about your recent success in Michigan uh, on this on this buck. Um, so the first thing that I, I want to I, I want to get onto the property where this buck lived. Um, how many years did you have access to this property? Um, what does the property look like as far as terrain, vegetation, um, uh, ag mix, whatever? Break break down the property for us. 
Sure. Um, the property itself is about 200 acres. Um, it's a family. It's my wife's uncle's um, farm. They've owned it for decades. And um, I've been hunting it the last eight years or so. Um, the first few years of that, other people had permission as well. Um, and um, the last few years, then I was able to actually kind of lease it from him. Um, if you looked at it from a topographical map standpoint, the entire area is probably about 80% ag. Um, that's a little bit different than most of the spots I hunt, which are maybe more like 40 or 50% ag or, or less. Um, so it's very heavy on the ag. So it's very, you know, small woodlots, small swamps, um, really pigeonhole these deer. And for some reason produce, uh, like I generally have larger trail camera pictures of deer in this more Southern part of Michigan than where I'm from, you know, an yeah. hour north closer to Grand Rapids. Um, so if you, it just feels a little bit more like um, Iowa, for lack of a better, uh, you know, it feels a little bit more like just the general Midwest, very heavy on ag. It's not that rolling. It's pretty, pretty flat. This particular property um, has the weird phenomenon of being surrounded by mostly like a, a what I would just call a lily pad swamp, for lack of a better phrase. It's basically a lake that's not a you know, it's not an all sports lake with cottages on it. It's a, uh, it's kind of a nasty lake that isn't very deep, but it's, it's, you wouldn't want to, f- <laughs> we have one spot we canoe on and we always joke that you wouldn't want to fall off a canoe into this. Cause I don't know that you'd swim to shore. You'd be so, it's not a cattail swamp. It's a, it's a just nasty, weedy mud hole um, basically swamp. And that totally, you know, just affects deer movement on all, on all fronts. So we have a sort of Island, type thing that we hunt we call it an island it doesn't it's more of a peninsula it's just an island to us because it it bumps into another property so we have to canoe is the only way to to get there um but this i killed this buck on the mainland portion of the farm so basically we're looking at uh 100 and plus acres of corn um uh asparagus probably 30 acres of asparagus and then a little fenced cherry orchard and then right off of the corn there's just a peninsula going out into this um going out into this you know surrounded on three sides by water and it's just a 10 acre woodlot um with about a five acre field in between the woodlot and the corn along that field is just all sorts of thick brushiness and there's just not a lot of it but there's just enough where it offers some security cover beyond the deer, say, just bedding in the corn, um, where there's just enough cover there to, you know, support somewhat of a whitetail population. So it's never a spot where I see 20 deer from. It's usually a spot where I see one to, you know, one to five deer per sit. Um, gotcha. Just, I think, due to the lack of woods. But it but it holds deer, right? It does hold deer, yep. The, yep. the few I've chased a few big bucks on it. This is the first one that I've that I've killed, not the first one that I've seen here. And, um, and I would, I would use say that that definition fits it. It's not a, it's not a transient movement. I think there are deer that reside on that farm, even when the corn is, is down. Yeah. So traditionally does it hold bucks or is it more of like a, a doe, a doe bedding area? This seems so strange to say for this area. Um, it has always had a higher buck to doe ratio than okay. all of my other properties i uh, most of i'm in kent county in michigan and, and I, if i hunt my home farm my house is on 
on 30 acres. I can see 20 does a night, and I'll see one, you know, spike, four point, six point. Um, occasionally see, you know, a two-and-a-half-year-old eight. Um, and it's a very good hunting property with I have a full 20 acres of really great cover. You know, I have food plots, and, and it just it's entirely different. Um, much smaller parcels in the area, much heavier hunting pressure. Um, the spot in Kalamazoo County is um, – I think it gets pretty heavy pressure, but it's so, you know, the parcels are so much bigger, averaging more in that 100 to 200 acre size parcel that I think it just, even with a lot of people having permission, it just is less stand locations per square mile, less hunters per square mile. And um, the ag definitely supports deer, but I just never see, I never see 20 deer here. I'm sure I hear other reports of hunter scene, but it just must just be this property and surrounding properties that, um, I usually see limited number of deer and I see more bucks than does. And I, I still trying to figure that one out. That's a win though, right? It's there's sometimes where it's just, I don't care. I don't care what the reason is. I'm just, I'm I'm just happy that that's the case. Right. Yeah. All right. So like every year I go into the year with at least one, you know, a picture of one mature whitetail on that farm. A lot of, a lot of two-year-old eight points and, um, and a lot of little bucks and, you know, occasional doe groups. Also, a lot of coyotes. I don't know if that you yeah. know, has something to do with lower deer numbers. I tons of coyote pictures um, as well. Does that island that you speak of? Do you feel that they they hang there because um, it is in a way secluded, and it's there's only like one way in, really for for predator, uh, one way in, one way out type of type of scenario? Is do, do you think they feel safe there? I put a lot of thought into that. I mean, really, like to to lay the property out on a map. There's there's the place that we can canoe to, which is you know not the place where I killed this buck, and and um and to to verify that the swamp is kind of impassable, so to speak. I get different trail camera pictures on that spot we canoe to than the mainland part of this spot. Like the, I I don't know that I've ever gotten a buck to show up in both of those. Like it's literally an entire differently different deer herd um on each piece despite being very close in proximity gotcha um the swamp itself is extremely long um covers you know multiple properties so i think just that division there divides it but i think in both you know i kind of have the same setup going it, it, thankfully it hunts different different wind directions but um i essentially have two peninsulas into this swamp that i'm hunting and i think both of them are just big enough where yes i think that deer will set up their beds like if i can think of where this buck was bedded his view his wind was directional was coming from the mainland you know past him um out over the water and his view he was set up like essentially viewing the the water i guess or, or maybe you know he was back to the water i don't quite know which way he was looking um but his wind was mainland going over you know hitting him as he sat right along the edge of the water. So okay. I feel like he was almost in an impenetrable, you know, bedding location that does set up for safety using primarily that water feature to, to his advantage. Okay. So how many years of experience or uh, of history did you have with this particular buck that you know of? We keep trying to, we, we keep looking at trail camera pictures and trying to force think that this is maybe a deer that had a similar frame last year and just got a lot more 
trash and, and, and messed up, but I, I just cannot say that cannot guarantee you. I yeah. don't know if he had a, you know, an injury. He just, his one side is so wacky. Uh, this is as far as I know, this is my first year encountering okay. this deer. So I do not have any history right. with this deer unless it's the big eight that I've chased the last two years that, that I am missing this year that I had pictures of in late December of, of last year. And now he's disappeared. So, okay. Could it be? I, I don't know. I don't. I just don't think so. I don't have enough evidence. You know, the shape of the one side would match up, but yeah. to say that he, you know, got all that trash and got injured and, and messed up the one side, I think is just a stretch. Yeah. All right. So let's talk a little bit about um, uh, what this buck was doing. Uh, when when did you? get trail camera like first tra- i mean number one do you run trail cameras number two when did you get yep. when did you get uh trail camera pictures of him uh so you knew he was in the area yeah so obviously if, if the with the property it's quite easy to run you know for cell cams to actually pick up you know some of these bigger woodlots they hunt it's really hard to you know we can't bait here so it's very hard to pinpoint you know where big deer are and i always try to try to not let trail cameras influence my decision too much on where to hunt but um this property you know with as many kind of pinches and water features as it has um it, i basically set up the camera right between the cornfield um and you know and this woodlot in a stretch where i was certain every deer bedding there you know would use and I got him maybe only five or six times, not really enough to verify that I felt he was, you know, living there full time. Um, so I have, f- I have five or six, five or six sets of pictures, probably a total of 30 pictures of him, um, all between you know, like July 1st and like August 20. Okay. And then what happened after August 20th? Yeah, he was just, he was just gone. Um, yeah. I don't have another. I don't have a picture of him hard horn at, at all. At, at all. Okay. So, so you knew this deer was in the area through that, you know, up until August twentieth, and then did you have a gut feeling or? My question is, uh, like, deer come and go all the time, especially on some of the farms that I hunt. Sometimes they're kicked off by pressure. Yeah. Sometimes it's a changing food source. Um, you know. August 20th is really close to that. And maybe you've experienced this, maybe you haven't, but on some of the farms that I hunt, there's a huge shift once they go hard horn or once they're getting close to that uh, hard horn. So there's another factor. Um, what, what do you think the factor was of him leaving? And did you know, or have a gut feeling that he was still in the area regardless of no trail camera pictures? The number one factor that I chose to stand on in October one is our opening day. So um, the number one reason I chose to stand for opening day is just because it had a Southeast wind and it's like, it's like threading the needle here. So when you get an exact like, or like a South Southeast wind, I can get up in this tree along the water's edge. I can sneak in like the back door um, and get up in this tree without any deer even being bedded in this CRP field or bedded in the woods seeing me. And I'm kind of in this little gate, if you will, between that field and the corn. So that was number one reason I was in that tree that night. Number two reason, yeah, I was texting as I sat in that tree and that buck was bedded right behind me and I didn't know it at the time. Um, I I was texting buddies pictures of that deer saying, you know, it was basically at that point, it was just, 
a dream saying like, you know, he, this deer exists, uh, he's somewhere around. And, um, my thought at that point is, is the only, I have had deer move in that shift. I've had them disappear in the first week of September timeframe, but then I've also had them come back in the first week of November, um, time frame and I've I've killed deer there in that time frame. So last year on October two, I had an eight point that was would show occasionally, maybe once a week on camera, um, that I was after and I killed him on October two um from this same tree. So I, I, I had good history just one year ago, you know, from this tree. So it's just mainly it's just my favorite tree to go to. I mean, I have access if I, I guess, add them all up at all my little suburban spots up. I think I have like 13 or 14, you know, properties. I probably have, you know, 60 or 70 tree stands. Um, you know, so it was it's not like it was my only option or the only option that I liked, but from a Southeast wind, once I saw that, I was like, it was pretty set in my mind that that's where I was going. Yeah. Um, from that perspective. So to say that I had a, deep gut feeling that he was still around. I, I really didn't. Okay. Um, I, I, I thought that there was a chance there was enough, you know, wide open egg where I can, the visual from the stand is amazing. So it's just kind of that spot where you feel the need to go to at some point in that first week of the season, no matter what you have on trail camera. And it just, um, you know, yeah, it, it felt right. Um, without that trail camera picture, I, I don't think I would have been in that tree that night because I have a few other, deer i've been targeting so so was i targeting that deer absolutely uh did i have a lot to go off to know that he would be bedded right behind me that night um no man that's crazy so does that does that tree stand require a specific wind it sounds like it does and does it require a specific access route to get in there to use that wind and finally i know this is a long kind of string of questions but how aggressive is that wind based off of where you felt deer movement was coming from? Yes. And yes. to the first two questions, um, not that in a sense, not that aggressive, the water, the water makes the spot. So, um, yes, the wind sets up very well for me to access as well. Um, I'm accessing, I'm coming from the North. So a South Southeast, um, you know, works well. Um, and yes, it also sets up, it, it's, it's, it's that perfect wind that sets up well for deer movement as well, because this five acre field on this peninsula, I can't shoot across it with my bow. I mean, the field is a couple hundred acres, I'm sorry, a couple hundred yards, you know, in depth. So it's, it's a big picture funnel. It's not like narrowing these deer down to 30 yards. However, it's been my experience with that South winds that they just kind of stay low along the swamp edge along the the north side and just funnel right past my stand. So that's been a kind of a consistent experience over the last few years that, so does the wind set up well for me in the tree? Yes. Does the wind also set up well for the deer and where they want to come? Also, yes. Um, is the spot aggressive? Not really. Um, it's not, I did not know, like, so he was, yeah, that night he was bedded, you know, he was bedded 40 yards behind me when I got up into that tree and I didn't know that. And I've never seen a deer bed there. Yeah. Um, the last four years or so, we've had a very high water table, high water levels here. This year we had a bit of a drier spring and a normal summer and the water levels came down. And so what that did is all on that 
you know, lily pad swamp that was so high, it kind of let, you know, very small clumps of cattails grass is grow up and kind of thick thickened up right along this lily pad edge. And it, it almost just produced something different. And that's where that buck was bedded right in that new little, you know, growth where last year he would have been bedded in water. Yeah. That's crazy. Um, so you, you get to the, you get to the stand, you climb up and you had no idea. Now I've been in scenarios before where I'm climbing up the stand and as I'm actually climbing, I'm, I've learned to be somewhat methodical in my approach and, and slow and not go crazy, um, and be observant because who knows where deer could be at any time how yeah. long before you actually saw this deer? Was it as you were climbing up or as you were clipping in, or did you, did you just have to wait till he stood up? It was, a, it was an hour into the hunt. Okay. And, um, I had had one deer, uh, one doe come directly down my trail kind of from the, she must've been like bedded in the asparagus. So, you know, the first deer of the night coming from where, where she wasn't supposed to come from. And, um, and she, she was on my boot trail sniffing. I had, I had sprayed down my boots and she was, she was on something, not enough to, to make her blow, but enough to make her squirrely. So I was, I was focused on her for quite a few, you know, 20 minutes um, and just not focused almost directly behind me. And we're talking like my wind was probably just missing him by a sliver. Um, I had dropped some milkweed, um, and I was very casual in my stand. So, I mean, this stand is full of cover. I mean, I'm, I'm practically, practically walking around, Yeah. <laughs> you know, on my phone, looking at deer, glassing, like I have no limitation to my m- range of motion whatsoever. Okay. Um, n- not a care in the you know world for me, because I think these deer are coming from 200 yards away, not 40 yards away. Right. And I, and the visual is so good that I will see deer long before they are close Right. And, um, and, and then behind me, I just heard like a, like a horse sneeze is what it sounded like. I mean, I've heard deer sneeze before, but this, I mean, this sounded like a horse sneezing behind me. I mean, it made me, it made me jump. I I literally jumped. Um, and I turned around and it took me a good 10 minutes through all the, you know, this grass cattail mess is probably six foot tall. It took me a while to see what was in there. And, and literally I just see, you know, rack just moving, through and I can, uh, you know, it just took each 10 minutes. I kind of learned more and more and more. And eventually I just learned, you know, over a half hour, I just learned that this deer who kept sneezing was the big buck I was after. And he was just laying there 40 yards behind me. That's crazy. All right. So at this point for me, like, I don't, first off, let me ask you this. As you, you hear him sneeze, you throw up the binos or you really start like go looking hard for this deer, you identify him, you see him. You mentioned your wind was missing him by just a sliver. Was it a mm-hmm. good sliver, like over the water, or was it a bad sliver where there's a chance that he has to walk through your scent stream for you to get a shot at him? I didn't pitch if he had ten, if he had stood up and walked to the right, where he didn't really have anywhere to go at that point. I mean, okay. almost on this like little cliff face going down to the water um um 
later I had deer walking through the water. Again, I point, I mentioned how the water levels were lower. So it was kind of a new, almost a new learning experience when the water drops, you know, yep. a foot and a half or so foot, foot and a half, like what deer, how it changes deer, um, movement. But, um, yes, if he had walked to the right, I think I would have got, he would have almost had to go out in the water and I would have been able to, you know, kill him in the water as he, you know, if he had given me that few seconds before getting my wind. But yes, I think my wind was going, to his right and, and perhaps over top of him. I mean, the wind was only like a, you know, six to eight mile an hour breeze, um, up there. So it wasn't, it wasn't too intense. And, um, but I think I was, he was 10 foot below to the base of my tree at least. And I'm, you know, 20 foot up in the tree. So it could very well be that not only was my wind missing him to the right, I was also just going right over. I remember watching my milkweed go, and it, my milk would never, you know, never touch the ground. It just carried out over that pond. Awesome. All right. So how long until he stood up? I want to say that, um, that he, I first heard him sneeze around. I'm just guessing at these times. Cause I didn't look at my, I want to say I first heard him sneeze at 620, got up around 650, Okay. And worked his way out into the field, um, and um, and then I killed him around seven fifteen, seven twenty. Okay. So it was it was an hour. I had a chance. I mean, uh, Mike, my heart started racing probably seven or eight different times, and then and then calmed down because I didn't think I was going to get a chance, and then fired back up again. Yeah. Um, so, but he never gave me a shot. You know, I just stood there ready with my bow. I ranged the bush. I ranged to the left, I ranged to the right, I ranged the water, I ranged everything for anywhere where he would stand up out of that bed and give me an opportunity. And he just jumped up and trotted, you know, almost ran another 25 yards kind of out of range and at 70 yards into the, you know, thick stuff and then squirted out into the field beside me and just tempted me with every sort of 55, 65 yard shot it seems like he would just stand there at 60 yards broadside and, and like I've, I've killed deer at similar ranges before. And I just couldn't bring myself to, yeah to let one rip at, at long range when I still felt like he was going to work farther down that funnel, yeah you know, and give me a 20 yard shot. Yeah. That pay, the patience paid off, you know, great, to, great to hold off on that. Now, is there, was there a chance that, you know, you said he was bedded at 40 yards from you, but then he squirted off to 70 plus to um did it look like he was jay hooking or when he came out of that bed trying to get um a nose full of that field before he entered it like did it did it look like he was scent checking that field making sure everything was safe i wish i could have had a better visual on him when he was doing that um i i would say yes only for the sense of how you know i have (laughs) it I haven't spent a lot of time with big bucks inside of a hundred yards. I'll, I'll, I'll throw that out there. I've, uh, I've, I've missed a few in Wisconsin, missed a couple in Michigan, killed a couple. Um, but, um, but he, he did everything the slow big buck methodical way. And he yeah. didn't, he wasn't, he wasn't lazy and loose. So he took every single thing felt like it took 10 minutes. It felt like it took him, 10 minutes out of my visual for him to work his way out into the field. Then when he was out in the field, he was, you know, scanning around slowly shredded a sumac tree and just destroyed it. Yeah. Um, 
you know, did more looking around browsing. I mean, he, he was totally comfortable when he was out in that field. Um, the field is also about five to six foot tall. Um, you know, it's enough to get a shot through, but it's, it's the perfect height where I think they just feel comfortable, even right. though, you know, from a 20 foot tree stand height, they're quite exposed to the visual. Yeah. So, I mean, cause, cause he could have stood out of his bed and if he wanted to, he could have walked a straight line right to the field, right by you. Right. Yes. He did yeah. not. He, he did, did not, not do at that. all. Do yeah. That. Okay. No, he almost went back and forth through the thick stuff. And my guess is he was doing everything, scent checking, visual. I mean, I mean, that wind was going right over that field, right to his nose. So yes, that's, I, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Which, which just reinforces the fact that like, <laughs> you know, that they're, sometimes they can be so stupid and then sometimes they, they just like this buck did, um, you just happen to be in the right position to catch him. Right. But as far as the wind was concerned, he, he knew that he needed to, you know, go, go smell some things and, and, you know, maybe be a little bit more cautious coming into this field. Another question I have is, did he come out as far as the terrain is concerned? Did he come out at one of the lowest spots in the field? The, the very lowest spot, the very lowest spot. Yeah. And that's something that I don't think a lot of people talk about, to be honest with you, is these deer are coming out in these low spots. Um, there's another really good Michigan hunter. His name's Andy May, and he talks about that. That's some things that he looks for when he goes. Um, he looks for sign, and, and he does his scouting. Is the lowest spot in some of these fields because they can come out. They're not skyline, you know, all these other things. Um, so as yeah. he comes out, he starts to, you know, he's in the field. You have an opportunity at some pretty long uh, shots, but you just stayed, you know, you stayed patient because you had a gut feeling that he was going to work his way. How long did it take him once he stepped out in the field to the time where you actually drew back on him? It was about a half hour. He, um, he, for what I still can't explain to you, you know, why he did all of what he did or why he was even sneezing. You know, part of the thing that came to mind is we, you know, I've been hearing of some deer dying of EHD and I'm like, man, is he, was he suffering? That was my first instinct. But then, but then when he came out and he was cleaning himself and shredded that tree, I'm like, no, that's a perfectly healthy looking white tailed deer. And, uh, he, he, um, he browsed for a bit and slowly worked my way. And then right before he was about to break bow range, you know, a good be inside of 40 yards again, he turned back and went right back almost to his bed and just hung out for another, like five to 10 minutes, just in that, like right where, I guess I would just call it fringe habitat or right where the, you know, the water plants meet the, you know, the drier field. And he just hung out right there and just, just watching. I could hardly see him right there again in the thick stuff. And then, then I heard splashing behind me. And this is, again, this is like the first time I've witnessed this in seven years of hunting this, but in the, through the pond, here comes three, like a group of deer. And they were, they were walking, they were set up to walk directly downwind of me through this pond that I thought was my, you know, security from ever getting winded in this spot. And, um, so at that point I was, my heart was racing cause I knew I was about to get it done. And then I'm now I'm freaking out because these does are coming in behind me and I, I, I look at the does and then I look back at him and, and he literally just steps out at 28 yards, leaves the cover 
and is just standing there watching. I think he was trying to get a better visual of what was splashing, so he just kind of stepped up in elevation and looked, you know, to verify those. Again, he was still perfectly calm, and um, and he just, when he stepped out, he was perfectly broadside, and I drew back and shot, and he, he wasn't, the, the does weren't spooky yet, and he wasn't, um, but I, I sensed my, <laughs> I, I think I got it done within the 30 seconds that I needed to get done, else my hunt was uh, likely done with those uh, does, or at least it would have, I don't think he would have, in all of my past experiences with big bucks, when they, they don't come out in a, any more open cover when they sense any sort of danger. Yeah, you know? and that's crazy. Like, the fact, because if, the way I'm interpreting this story is he got out of his bed, he flanked the field, went to the field, and then went back in towards his bed. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, th- which is crazy. I mean, why do, you know, you could sit here and just ask the question, why do they do what they do? Why did he do that? Right? Maybe he heard, the, did you think he heard the splashing and then went to investigate? Yeah. I feel, I feel like one of the biggest lessons I learned is that he, like, you know, I killed him because I was on his bed. Right. Um, right. You know, I, I mean, I will fully admit it was by accident. I didn't, I didn't like, I can't take credit for like, Oh, I knew he, that was his exact bed. And, and I was going in to kill him that night. If, if I had known that I would have been going in in the morning trying to, you know, get into sand two hours before dark and kill him as he's settling into his bed. Um, I never would have taken the risk of climbing a tree 40 yards from a bedded buck. But I, I feel like the lesson I I learned was like, he never, he did all of those things, right? He, he, he shredded a tree. He ate, he pooped. He did all of, you know, he, he, it's, he clearly was discomfortable, like, or, you know, uncomfortable, like sneezing bugs out in his bed. So he, he got up, did all of that activity, but he never left. Like if I could draw a radius, he never left within like 50 yards of his bed. So he stayed in that same zone despite being fully, you know, up and doing things for like you know in 80 in almost 80 degrees an hour and a half before dark and then um yeah i don't quite know if he would have stepped into that same lane or if he was just trying to get a better visual on those does i mean when he when i looked at the does and looked back he was stepping up onto this bank where i could now kill him and then he turned his head to look you know and then he turned around his whole body and looked back at the splashing so yes he was interested in whatever was man you know, splashing. And I know that once he got up to that point, he could see that. So I think that's what he, I think he knew they were deer and he just wanted to see which deer they were. Yeah. Cause he wasn't, it wasn't like a, I'm on high alert. Cause I hear the splashing. It was like, uh, okay, who's coming to the field. Yeah. So it's this, this story is, is what I think happens. I don't want to say more oftentimes than not, because I think it doesn't happen a lot. But I think this is a scenario of right place, right time mixed with just a really good, you know, a, a really good tree stand spot. Right. Uh, and the wind doing yeah. exactly what uh, you wanted it to do. The, the, I guess the luck part of it or the right place, right time part of it is this, the, the water just happened to be lower, which offered up a, a better spot. This, this buck thought where he was laying was perfect and What's crazy is you made it to the tree stand at 40 yards, climbed up it, had an hour of whatever time, you know, just hanging in the tree stand before you heard him sneeze. And I don't know. And it just worked out. So 
kudos to you, man. Congratulations on one hell of a deer. Now, um, just, uh, just for a guess and the visualization for everybody on, uh, on the podcast here, how old do you think he was? And roughly, what do you think he scored? Very hard to, I mean, he's the oldest deer I've ever got to be the oldest deer I've ever killed. His head looks Um, big. I didn't quite grasp the, yeah, the magnitude until I brought, you know, brought him home. I've got pictures of my taxidermist, like (laughs) my taxidermist, Rick, he, when he heard I shot it, he came, he's like, I'm not going to let any um, deer processor or butcher mess this cape up for you. I'm coming over and skinning him out right now. And, um, so he came over and the pictures of him hanging in the tree are, yeah, he, it, I mean, it's the biggest bodied, biggest face, you know, biggest hoof deer I've ever killed. So I, I think he has to be in that, uh, you know, that five or six range, but, um, yeah, with no history with the deer, I mean, I am, I am sending the teeth into a lab, um, to the MSU lab to, to get him, um, get him aged. And, uh, I, all of his mass measurement there wasn't a mass measurement under um the smallest mass measurement was just under five inches so he just carried his mass all the way through um so i i green scored him at 158 and and um i think i yeah i think i may may have messed up a little bit there he might have um he might be a little less than that but um Green scored him at 158. If if he had both sides good and he wasn't all wonky, he would he he would probably score about 170. I'd I'd imagine. So yeah. he's certainly no 200 inch white tail, but he's he's a full he's exactly two feet wide. He was like 23 and seven seven eighths um, wide and um, just a just a solid deer. Which I mean, we always complain about Michigan hunting, right? And I know I feel like everything's grass is always greener on the other side we always say well if i was in iowa i could get it done on a big deer and and uh <laughs> i've gone and hunted other states now and i, I know that like uh, there's days where it can be hard to kill a big buck in any states and and but in michigan we do have like kent county has more hunters per square mile than any other county in the united states so it's it is tough hunting we all get two buck tags everybody you know, to each their own, but everybody goes out and slays that first two-year-old eight-point they see because they got another, or, or less, because they got another, you know, buck tag to pursue. So we, it's just very hard for a deer to reach maturity um, yeah. in southwest Michigan. And um, and I'm happy that this one got to get there. I don't know if he's four, five, six, or seven. Um, so hoping to get a little more clarity there, but um, he definitely is the most mature deer I, I have ever got to put a tag on. Perfect. Well, uh, Calvin, man, really appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on and share the success story with us. And uh, good luck the rest of the season, man. Thanks so much, Dan. Thanks for having me. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode in the books. Huge shout out to Calvin for taking time out of his day. Really appreciate uh, you taking time to hop on. Huge shout out to Wasp, Vortex, Hunt Stand, Ozonix, Lone Wolf, Exodus Trail Cameras, and Excalibur Crossbows. Please go out and support the companies that support this podcast. And lastly, be safe out there. Be good to your neighbors. Send good vibes out into the universe. You'll get them back. Wear your safety harness and remember to have fun in the woods. And we'll talk to you next time.